Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Glory to God in the highest. I almost said he is risen indeed. Amen. 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 He is risen indeed. That's right. Well, such a delight to sing praises to the, to the Lord this morning. Let's continue our worship now. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, very familiar text. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 for the Scripture reading, and only verse 11 for today's text here. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through, let's do 1 through 20, we got some time. Now it happened in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of, is it Quirinus? Uh, Was governor of Syria. And everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And then our passage for today. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And it happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem then. See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. All who heard it marveled at it, at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard, just as it was told them. Well, back in December of 2018, yes, you can be seated, I preached a message on Isaiah chapter 9, called it, A Child Born, A Son Given. And I opened that time by referencing a biannual survey put out by Ligonier Ministries, which is a very reputable source of theological truth founded by the late, great R.C. Sproul, who, along with Lifeway Research, a not-so-reputable source for theological truth, yet still very capable of putting together a survey like this, polled evangelical, black Protestant, and mainline Protestant men and women all across the country in what they called the state of theology which asked the question, what do American evangelicals believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible? What do American evangelicals, not Catholics, not Mormons, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not some fringe cult movement, though they do have a section for non-evangelicals, but what do Protestant evangelicals in America believe about God, about salvation, about ethics and the Bible. They did it in 2016, 2018, 2020, just a couple months ago in 2022. Let's look at some of the results of this most recent survey. The survey, which included statements which those who identify as evangelical Christians were given the opportunity to say that they either strongly agreed with 
somewhat agreed with, didn't know, somewhat disagreed with, or strongly disagreed with, okay? You ready? Statement one, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. Results, 96% of evangelicals agree, 96%. 1% somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree, or don't know, making up 100%. This is a great start here. We're off to a great start. Let's go to number four. God learns and God adapts to different circumstances. Results, 62% disagree. Nine were not sure. 29% agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. I'm not sure how the 29% reconciles with God learning to his being perfect and never making a mistake, but... That's what it says. We still got 62% out of it, though, so we're doing all right. Statement number 14. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Results? 92% agree. 6% disagree. 2% don't know. Not bad. Not, Not bad at all. Statement number five. Biblical accounts of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. This event actually occurred. Results, 96% strongly agree. 3% somewhat agree, 1% I don't know. Now we're talking here, okay? But it's when you get to statement number six that things really begin to unravel, okay? And this is what prompted today's sermon Statement number six. Look at this with me here. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You ready for this? 60% strongly agree with that statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Over half of the evangelicals, mainline Protestants, strongly agree that Jesus was a created being. 3% said they somewhat agree with that. 7% said, I don't know. That's 70%. Only 20% of those surveyed says that they strongly disagree with the statement. 5% said they just disagree. Meaning, only a quarter of evangelicals, according to this poll, said that Jesus was not a created being. It was surprisingly worse in 2018 with only 14% strongly disagreeing with this statement. There are more on this survey that are almost just as shocking, especially today with all the questions regarding homosexuality and the gender absurdities. But as Peter said, judgment must begin with the household of God. And to have the overwhelming majority of American evangelicals strongly agree with the statement that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest being created by God was truly unbelievable to me. So much so that I called Ligonier. And I talked to a guy named Wade. And I said, Wade, your uh, state of theology that you put out in October of 2018, statement number six, I said, Wade, there has to be some kind of clerical mistake here. There has to be some kind of error on the website. And he said, no, no. These are real numbers. We surveyed people who identified as evangelical, those who would call themselves proclaimers of the euangelion. That's what that word means. Good news, the good news, the same good news that these angels were proclaiming in our passage. 96% of those who say that the biblical accounts of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are completely accurate. 92% of the people who believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but 86% of evangelicals polled at that time believe that Jesus Christ was the first and greatest being created by God. He said, no, no mistake, it's real. He said, is there anything else I can do for you today? And I said, yes, Wade, <laughs> there is. Tell me what you think about the statements, the, the findings from statement number six. His response, quote, shocking, tragic. 
And I would agree with this man from Ligonier. It's tragic. That's a perfect word to describe it. The trend continued in 2020, and it continued a couple months ago in 2022. How tragic is this, you ask? Well, another way to put it is, of the 92% of the people who agree that God counts a person righteous, not because of their works, but only because of one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 70% of those people, according to this poll anyhow, are basing their eternal justification before and eternal reconciliation to their holy creator on a Christ that doesn't actually exist. Having said that, I said it four years ago and I'll say it again. I have no problem. I have zero qualms. I I have no hesitation, no reservations about standing before you this morning on the authority of the divinely inspired scriptures to say, if you believe that Jesus Christ was the first and greatest being created by God, you are placing your trust and basing the destination of your everlasting soul on a Savior who does not exist He's never existed. Therefore, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sin. I don't want this to go unsaid during any, uh, this season or any season here. Even if 99% of us knew coming in here that Jesus Christ was not created by God, but was in fact God in human flesh, it's still worth our time this morning to proclaim this divine truth to the other 1%. Jesus was God incarnate. Truly man, truly God. Meaning, Jesus was not created. Jesus is creator. Okay? We have to understand the monumental significance and eternal ramifications for the truth of the incarnation of Christ. This is a non-negotiable doctrine. It's not up for varying degrees of personal interpretation or alternative viewpoints here. This is not a doctrine that's on par with those who have varying eschatological convictions. Am I pre-trib? Am I post-trib? I don't know. Am I pre-mill? I don't even know what that means. Post-mill? It's not on par with those who squabble about spiritual gifts, continuationism, and cessationism. It's, It's not a matter of old earth versus young earth. We may disagree on these things, but we can still worship together. But to misunderstand the incarnation of God, the infleshing of the eternal Son of God and its significance, the reality of it being an essential, foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, right next to the justification by faith alone and the resurrection itself, is to find yourself outside of not only biblical orthodoxy, but also outside of genuine saving faith. meaning the wrath of God still remains on you. In other words, you're not a true Christian. I mean, I'd love to come up here and tell a few jokes, dress up in a costume, sing some songs on Christmas Day, like they're all doing at the other churches, but I'm here to tell you. If you misunderstand the incarnation of God, and its significance, the fact that it's an essential foundational doctrine of the Christian faith right there next to justification by faith alone and the resurrection itself, you are not a true Christian. You are still on your way to an eternity apart from the love of God and the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. And crying is totally appropriate, young man. There should be weeping. That's the weightiness of what we'll be discussing this morning. We must get this right. We must have this right, or else we're truly no better off than the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses and so many damnable false religious systems and demonic cults that came before them. We must get this right. We must be crystal clear on this biblical truth and to help us 
with that. I thought we'd take a look at a single verse together this morning. A single verse seated in the middle of what may be the most familiar text read this time of year. Likely read in churches all throughout the country this morning, if they're even open, that is. A very familiar passage, but maybe one whose true meaning is skimmed over or neglected altogether during the annual infantilization of Jesus Christ. Look again in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What I want to do together in our our time together this morning is flip that verse around 180 degrees. Let's not start with the baby today, okay? I know you all know this, but Jesus is not a baby anymore. He was an infant for like one thirty-fifth of his life, okay? So let's start with the end of this verse, verse first here. Let's start with that fundamental, foundational, non-negotiable doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. What is his eternal nature? And to do so, we begin with the word Lord. Lord. Kurios. The word for Lord conveys the sense of a supreme one, one who is sovereign and possesses absolute authority, absolute ownership, and uncontested power. Now, in some cases, that word kurios can also denote a title of honor and is often translated sir, which expresses uh, respect or reverence, sometimes used by uh, a slave uh, to their master, uh, from a son to his father, or when addressing public officials. I mean, even Caesar Augustus himself was called Lord at one point. Certain cities even built temples for Caesar worship, as was the case in Smyrna, where the command was to honor the emperor by confessing Caesar is Lord. Which we learned last year caused all kinds of grief for the early Christians who refused to acknowledge him as such. I'm not going to call him Lord. One Lord. That's not the case in which Luke uses it here. Okay, That's not the sense that Luke uses it. It's not just some reverent humanistic salutation here. How do we know? Because he used the exact same words 16 times in this letter, most in the first chapter alone here, all in reference to the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Kyrios, is used repeatedly to designate the sacred name of Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name for God. In fact, the word kurios is used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament and approximately 750 times in the New Testament. Listen to the context that Luke uses this in, okay? Chapter 1, all chapter 1. Speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. Kurios. Verse 9. Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. That's the sanctuary of the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, God himself. Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing standing to the right of the altar of incense. Verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. He will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that's exactly what John did, right? When the priests and Levites from Jerusalem came and asked him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Curious, as Isaiah the prophet said. Next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And John, knowing that he had fulfilled his purpose, purpose, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thirty years earlier, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, 
In the sixth month, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary. Guess what he says? He says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The angel, excuse me, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is a nod to his divine nature. Mary said, behold... I am a slave to the Lord. I am a slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. A pregnant Mary then visits Elizabeth, John's mom. Guess what Elizabeth says to her about the child that's still in her womb? She says, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The mother of my Lord. She called this unborn child her master, her karyos, her owner. Not sir, but the Lord, her God. And why wouldn't she? The very angels of heaven created for the sole purpose of glorifying and worshiping Yahweh, the Lord Most High, the angels themselves called the child Lord. As one stands next to these shepherds and says, do not be afraid for today I... Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Lord. Jesus was Lord at his birth. I looked up the words to that song, Silent Night. That last stanza says it twice. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Now, I don't know if the hymn writer meant it this way or not. The original German uh, composer didn't say this. He just said, Christ in your birth. English version. Uh, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Whether or not the hymnist meant it this way, Luke, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, is clear. Jesus was Lord God at his birth. Indeed, at his conception, why, even before his conception, like Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was foreknown, when? From before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Meaning, this Jesus, God the Son, has always existed eternally, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, meaning he has always existed as Yahweh, Jehovah, meaning he has always existed. He has always been the Lord our God, meaning he was not created, but he is creator. Okay? One commentator said, the Lord Jesus is ruler of all things, king over all men, The one who holds the key to life and death, heaven and hell, in his hands. All power in heaven and on earth is committed unto him. There is no authority or power that exists which does not take its direction and its limitation from him. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. He was Lord from before the world began. He was Lord at the formation of the world, which was created by him and through him. He was Lord when God made man in his image. He was Lord in Eden. He was Lord at the fall of mankind. He was Lord throughout the history of Israel, as even David himself acknowledged in his prophecy of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a stool for your feet. This is a thousand years before this very night in Luke chapter 2. He was Lord when he was conceived in the virgin's womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. He was Lord at his birth. He was Lord throughout his perfect, sinless, spotless life. He was Lord in his death. He was Lord in his burial. He was Lord in his resurrection. He was Lord in his glorious ascension. He was Lord when from his glorious throne in heaven, 
seated at the right hand of the Father. He sent his spirit to indwell the first believers in the early church, and he is Lord now as he continues to indwell all those who believe in their hearts that he was raised from the dead. All those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he will return to this earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's right. That's why this was a holy night. Because the same Lord Jesus who had been worshipped by the holy angels ever since he created them is the same Lord Jesus that will be worshipped by the angels for the rest of eternity and all in between, including in the presence of these shepherds almost 2,000 years ago. As he was born as a man onto the earth that he spoke into existence. Do, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I don't want anybody here this morning to walk out of this building believing that Jesus Christ was the first and greatest being ever created by God. Don't do it. Stay here. Let's have, we've got plenty of s'mores. Let's talk about this. Stay as long as you want. A created Christ is a false Christ. A created Christ is a satanic Christ. It's an antichrist. A created Christ is a powerless Christ. I want you to take this as seriously as you've ever taken anything in your entire life. Because it's literally the difference between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you. Your heart could stop beating at any second now. You don't have control over it. You better have the right Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. <laughs> if you do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Whatever else you may be. We're not looking at a good man only. We're not interested merely in the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. We are face to face with the fact that God the eternal son has been to this world, has been in this world, and that he took upon him human nature, dwelt among us as man amongst men, God-man. We are face to face with the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation and of the virgin birth. It's all here, and it shines out in all the fullness of its amazing glory. What manner of man is this? He is more than a man. That's the answer. He is also God. The writer of Hebrews said, God, having spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul said he is before all things. In him, all things are held together. He said, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the incarnation. That's what this is all about. That's why the multitude of the heavenly host, myriads upon myriads of angels said to these shepherds, praise God. They were were giving glory to God in the highest because, Paul said, this Jesus Although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. That's what I was trying to say in my opening prayer. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is who? 
Lord, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you see, Jesus is Lord, and we don't make him Lord of our lives. He's already Lord of our lives. Because he created us, he owns us. He's the Lord of all lives. He's the Lord of everyone's lives, whether people admit it or not, whether people believe it or not. True Christians are just the only ones who gleefully acknowledge and admit it. We're the only ones who, by his sovereign grace alone, willingly submit our lives to him as our master. We are his slaves. He is our owner. He is our Lord. The angels also say that he's Christ. Christ the Lord. Point number two. We'll have to go through through these ones a bit quicker here. I just kept thinking 70%. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is also the Christ. Christos. Meshiach Messiah. The anointed one. It, it means to be consecrated for an office. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, priests, and kings were anointed. And all these offices were fulfilled in the Meshiach, the divine Messiah, Yahweh's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the divine Christ. He is the long-awaited, highly anticipated Christ of Israel. Daniel, in the ninth chapter, his prophecy foretells a time of when Messiah would come. Daniel writes, so you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 and sixty-two weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with a plaza and a moat even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince, that's the Antichrist, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Obviously, we could spend all winter on that passage there, but this morning it's important to note that Jesus used these very words against the Jewish people in Luke chapter 19 in his prophecy of the destruction of the temple, okay? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you to surround you and hem you in on every side, They will level you to the ground and your children with you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the the time of your visitation. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. This happened literally in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It's still in ruins to this very day as we sit here. Why? Why? They didn't, as Daniel said, know and have insight. They failed to acknowledge and embrace their Messiah when he visited them, okay? They missed the Messiah. And who was Jesus talking about? Himself. Right before they delivered him over to the hands of lawless men and hung him on a Roman cross. Let me ask you, do you know this Christ? Do you know this Christ? Do you know of the anointed Lord of the heavens and the earth? I would implore you not to not to fail to don't fail to recognize the this time in your life as He's revealing His true nature to you. Even this morning, as we're sitting here, don't don't fail to, to recognize this. Don't miss it here. Instead, I would implore you to bend your knee to the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. The angels in verse 11 also say that he is Savior. Jesus is Savior. What does this mean? What does he save from? We've, we've asked this most weeks in here, especially during our time in Acts last, last year. Are you saved? Are you saved? You need to be saved. Have you been saved? When were you saved? How can a person be saved? It's kind of an old-fashioned word, I guess, but it's a biblical word, right? The name Jesus itself means Jehovah is salvation. And Peter, in his first sermon at Pentecost, said, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word for saved is sozo. The word for savior is soter. 
When we talk about the doctrine or theology of salvation, we say soteriology. To be saved means to be rescued from great peril with added implications of to protect, to keep alive, to preserve life, to deliver, to heal, and to be made whole. So, in the case of the eternal Son of God, we're speaking of eternal rescue, eternal deliverance, eternal restoration, eternal preservation, eternal salvation. We already mentioned Paul's declaration when he quoted Deuteronomy 30, 14, which says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Paul says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. This being saved certainly isn't a new concept with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course. It's rooted in the Old Testament. Psalm 27, David says, Yahweh is, the light, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 62, surely my soul waits in silence for God. From him is my salvation. Surely he is my rock and my salvation. Isaiah 45, speaking of Messiah's reign during the millennial kingdom, a prophecy that hasn't even happened yet, God invites people, gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you who have escaped the nations. They do not know who carry about their graven image of wood and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare, draw near with your case. Indeed, let them consult together. He says, who is... Made this herd from old, who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. He calls himself righteous God and a Savior. And then he says, turn to me, be saved, all the ends of the earth. These are sweet words. I am God, there is no other. I saw this last week in my reading, and my heart just leapt for joy, like that little baby in Elizabeth's stomach. Rejoicing. Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no produce on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, the fields yield no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there will be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Empty, empty shelves at the grocery store? Produce not coming in? Could happen soon. Remember this verse. Yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. Who's he talking about there? The Messiah. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus. 700 years later, Luke 2.11, salvation has come. So here's the big question. What do we need to be saved from? Obviously, in order to be saved, rescued, delivered, means that we're in some great peril. Okay, But in what sense? Is it trouble at the office? Do we need to be saved from the trouble at the office? The flat tire on the way in here? The unbalanced checkbook? Marital conflict? Someone slandering you? Someone attacking your character? Strained relationship? Do we need to be saved from some sickness, some illness, some struggle with addiction, some drunkenness, some self-esteem issues that we have? Well, again, I'd venture to say that some of American evangelicalism may believe that's all Jesus does for them because that's what they see on TV. Right? If you just believe in Jesus like I do and donate to my ministry, God will bless you with perfect health and wealth too. All your wildest dreams on earth will come true. But an unbalanced checkbook and low self-esteem is not the great peril that the Bible speaks of. Okay? So what is it then? What is the Lord saving us from? A savior from what? 
Asaph tells, tells us in Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, help us for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, saved from what? Answer, the just penalty of the righteous wrath of a holy God, which will be poured out upon mankind because of our sin. Our sin. Forget the checkbook for a minute. Forget the addictions. Forget the trials for just a second here. Every seemingly great trial in your tiny, short, little earthly life is ultimately insignificant. It's, it's frivolous. If you are not delivered from your main peril, which is your sinful condition, which is your sinful nature, and the imminent judgment for being a divine lawbreaker. So what are you going to do? Well, hear these words today. A Savior is born. A Savior is born. This is what makes the good news such good news. The euangelion, the gospel that these holy angels were proclaiming, says that the same God, the same Savior, has come into the world in human form as the only one who could rescue or deliver his people from the penalty of their sin. And those who believe in his name, who believe in his word, who believe in his gospel, in their hearts are saved from the righteous wrath of a holy God and saved to an eternity with him in heavenly bliss forever and ever. A salvation which came through his death. Through his death. See, it's, it's only when you understand that the child was born into this world to die that you can truly appreciate the dramatic prog progression and climax of Luke 2, verse 11, okay? Look at the buildup. Look at it in your own Bibles. Look how these, this builds up. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Note how the angels start small. They end with the grand finale. Today, Bethlehem, born, Savior, Christ, Lord. We just did it backwards. We did it backwards because of that survey. We took the grand finale first. Let's get this straight. That baby is God. Bend the knee. He's the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-infinite creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things, the very word of God who was with God and who was God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing Nothing came into being that has come into being. That same God was also divinely anointed, divinely appointed to be the long-awaited, highly anticipated, promised Messiah of Israel, a light to the nations, the Savior to the world, the rescuer, the deliverer, the reconciler, the one who was born to die. The one who would die, a sinner's death as the Father made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And how could he have died if he had not first been born, right? He had to be born, he had to, be born to die. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He was born. Luke already told us he's born of a virgin. Why is that so important? It means he had no earthly father, which means he didn't inherit the same sinful nature that the rest of us did from our great, 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 however many times over, great-grandfather Adam. The Savior, Jesus Christ, was conceived through the power of God the Holy Spirit. No seminal transaction, okay? No cursed conception, which allowed him to be born absolutely perfect. He was born under the law of God, yet, because he himself was God, 
He's able to keep the law of God in its entirety for the full duration of his earthly life, never deviating from the right, never straying from the left to the right of his father's will. He was perfect. But Isaiah said it was the will of the father to crush the son. Why? So that he could be the perfect anointing sacrifice for sinners. The perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners, I'm sorry. Blood had to be shed. Death had to occur. There was no more perfect sacrifice than the one heralded by the angels in Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid, they say, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, not just Israel, but for all the people, all generations. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want you to look at those... uh, Three words right in the middle of that verse there, okay? Look at that verse again, and look at the the three words in the middle. Born for you. Okay? Let me just ask you this morning. Do you believe in the holy and inspired scriptures? Do you believe that Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is? The Lord, the Christ, the Savior, do, do you believe in this gospel of grace? Not just historically, but personally. Do you not, and don't, don't think about your wife right now. Don't think about your kids. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about the guys at work. Just think for yourself. Just your, Do you personally believe in this gospel of grace? Do you believe that he paid the penalty for your sin? Do you believe that he took the punishment that you deserved? Do you believe that he bore the weight of your transgression? That he took it upon himself, that he drank the bitter cup of the righteous wrath of God that was for you? He drank it. Do you believe that he came to die to rescue your soul from the wrath of his father, from the wrath of a holy God? And that he delivered you to eternal life with God in glory and all by his grace alone through faith alone. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Then my brothers and sisters, rejoice with the angels this morning. Rejoice with Zechariah. Rejoice with Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. Rejoice with these lowly shepherds. Rejoice with all the disciples and all the apostles and all sinners who have ever been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, throughout all the generations because the Christ, the Savior, the Lord has been born for you. For you. He was born for you. He was born in the city of David, right? Just like the prophet said he would be. But as for you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. Many would say, ah, Jerusalem is the city of David. I know that. Sure, that's true. He was her greatest king. But his hometown, his hometown was right here in Bethlehem. That's why Luke said that Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Yahweh told Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I see among his sons a king for me. That's David. So Samuel did what Yahweh said. He went to Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, verse 15, and it happened that when the angels had gone away from the shepherds into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go to Bethlehem. See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. My brothers and sisters, I'll close with this final point this morning. Which is to consider the first two words of our text for today. Okay? For today. I don't have to tell you this. You all know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was not born today. He was born in Bethlehem almost 2,000 years ago, likely sometime in April or March. He was born of a virgin. Likely, he was, like most other Jewish babies, he was wrapped in a swaddling cloth. But unlike almost any other baby, he was then placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, which was the sign for these shepherds, the 
This was the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ Jesus who came into the world having left his glorious position in heaven, not setting aside his deity, but setting aside some privileges of his deity, still truly God, but also now becoming truly man so that he could take the place of man, bear the punishment sinful man deserved for the sole purpose of reconciling them to a holy God for the glory of his Father in heaven. It is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those words are just as true today as they were back then. The question is, again, are you one of those? Are you one of them? And you say, well, how do I know? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead? Are you certain? Are you certain that you have been reconciled to a holy God through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been granted eternal life through Christ? He's the only way. He's the only way. He said it himself, I am the way. I am the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So I'm asking, are you one of those? If not, I would invite you to cry out to him this morning. Ask him to save your everlasting soul. Ask him to change your heart, to soften your heart to the truths of his word. And then just like those shepherds, leave this place glorifying and praising God for all the magnificent truths that he revealed to you even today. Amen? Amen. Let's have uh, Paul and the music team come up and close us. Lead us in uh, musical worship here. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, your truth. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.